The planet is heating up. The oceans are becoming filled with plastic. Change starts now. Change starts now. We're on a countdown to zero waste. Five, four, three, two, one. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. Here's your host, Laura Nash. Thank you for joining me on my countdown to zero waste as I eliminate a bunch of trash I don't need in my life and live cleaner. I couldn't do it without all the wonderful people I've had come on the show, and this week we have a special guest. His name is Daniel Silverstein, but you'll know him better as Zero Waste Daniel. He's a fashion designer who's refused to participate in unethical fashion practices, such as burning millions of dollars of clothes to keep a brand exclusive or pay people unfair wages. And he's leading the fashion industry in sustainability and ethics, and I was so stoked to speak with him in person. I was in New York City this summer, so I took the G train to Brooklyn and had the opportunity to sit down with Daniel in his shop where all the magic happens. So sit back and relax, put your vehicle on cruise control, or pour yourself a cup of Zero Waste tea, and check out my conversation with fashion designer Zero Waste Daniel. What do you call them? Like, you don't say scraps. Yeah, scrap. Um, Offcuts, materials, waste, call it anything. I'm getting a lot of materials uh, from this nonprofit called Fab Scrap that collects from about 200 different designers throughout the city. And they're collecting design room and sample room waste from designers, not production, but it's fascinating to see how many pounds, how much tonnage really is um, in just the design process. Um, and then there's a couple of factories that I work with throughout the city. and. I'll do like cutting room pickups from them. Mm -hmm. So here are people still making a lot of clothes because a lot of industries like fall out a little bit, like especially around here. Like remember there used to be like a meatpacking district and stuff like that. There is still a meatpacking district. It's mostly uh, nightclubs and restaurants. (laughs) There's an Apple store. (laughs) Um, So yeah, there has been definitely uh, the garment industry is getting pushed out of Midtown little by little. There are factories left. There's ones in Brooklyn, here in Greenpoint, in Sunset Park, in different neighborhoods, but they're very hidden. They're very tucked away. And it's interesting because our culture doesn't really value making things. I know. We're getting back to it, especially with the millennials and uh, what are what's the one after the Gen Z? I think so. Yeah, the Gen Zers. <laughs> um, they, they like the experience. We like the hand-making aspect of things. Um, But we weren't really raised to value the labor. And so one of the things that I really want to do with this brand is take this scrap material that, you know, the whole philosophy behind trash is that once you put it on the street, it's fair game. I forget who the criminal was that they caught by going through his trash. But like, once you put it out there, it's not yours anymore. And so industries, you know, Burberry is destroying $30 million of goods so that no one will get their trash. And then... A lot of the fashion industry is just letting go of these scraps because there's no use for them. There's no culture for recycling them. We don't have any standard practices for what we should do with them. So trash, gone. And I'm sort of saying, okay, I'm taking this stuff off the street and I'm giving it back to everybody, not you or you or you or you, right? So I I don't want to appropriate it for a color or a size or a kind of person. I want to say, like, this is what we can do for all of us. So it's genderless, 
all sizes, custom orders to accommodate special needs. And we just go from there um, because I think that less waste is better for everyone. Yes, that's fascinating that putting it out there and it doesn't belong to you anymore. And I think that's like the whole problem. Like we don't take responsibility for the garbage, right? We're like, oh, not mine anymore. So Mm -hmm. like, I don't have to deal with it and I can just produce it and send it out there, right? So we just have like so much being produced right now. It's so funny because it's almost like we're responsible for producing it, but every industry and the government enable us. We only do what we're allowed to do. You know, we go to jail for all kinds of stuff. Especially Um, here. Especially here. (laughs) Uh, There's no one policing this and there's no one regulating it in the States. There are laws, but they're really not being enforced properly. And the city has a goal of being zero waste by 2030. We'll see if they can do it. I know that it's possible. And I know that it's all just about giving people access to the tools and taking away the things that enable bad behavior. And you don't have to be a better person to do better. You know, you can still be a capitalist and do the right thing. Um, And I think that people are just afraid of change. I think the big thing is like food, right? Yeah. Like we won't get into food too much, but that's what I see everywhere. And I'm like always trying to find food, like on packaging. Yeah. um, It's hard to find food without packaging. It's interesting because the packaging in a lot of food is invisible. Um, We don't even see the packaging. You know, it's clear and you only see the food. You don't realize that you have to go through a layer to get your food. (laughs) And then you throw it away and you don't realize that you're doing it. So, like, there's just this moment of awareness that people need. And I've helped some people get there. I remember getting there myself. And I've also wanted something so bad that I've made the wrong choice before. And I know the lack of gratification that I get from that. So it's, it's, it's all a process for every individual, but the truth is if there were stricter guidelines and you couldn't put that wrapper on something, you couldn't have that disposable package, then everyone would be fine. Yeah, We would just, just buy the options we have. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so when you said you went on your journey, was it a process for you? Like, were you always an environmentalist? I only really recently realized that I was an environmentalist. I just felt a huge obligation to do the right thing. I think that it's important to protect the earth and do the right thing because we only have one earth and it's clear that the wrong things have been going on for the last couple decades. So how are we going to like re-steer the ship? And I feel like as I get older, I feel more and more responsibility to do that. But yeah, I just realized I was actually like an environmental activist by doing this, (laughs) which is kind of funny. Um, I was always just like a recycler, like try and do the right thing. And I think it's more personal, but I, I try and live my life by a strong moral compass, which is like, this is the right thing to do. That's the wrong thing to do. And once I realized that my actions would be polluting and I knew that that was wrong, I kind of just felt like, well, I can't do that. (laughs) So I had to come up with a different option. Which is a really, really cool option with clothes because they're so awesome and like nice and it's like such a cool job. To well, have. and kind of on the, the topic of like invisible packaging with food, um, you know, just because something's hanging in a store doesn't mean that it didn't come to the store in a plastic bag and that it doesn't have all the plastic tags and unnecessary packaging or supply chain 
going into it. Mm -hmm. Um, And food, clothing, and shelter are our three biggest needs, and they're the biggest polluting industries. Um, You know, oil is the number one polluting industry, but oil fuels all three of those. Um, And we consume, and there's so much construction waste. There's so much food and food packaging waste, and there's so much textile and uh, garment pollution from water to packaging to synthetics and uh it's really important for the people behind those industries to start figuring out ways for consumers to consume responsibly Mm -hmm. and you have a technique is it called the re-roll yeah technique so what's that so basically what i do is i take these scrap materials that i've gotten uh from wherever and i piece them back together to make new sheets of fabric so what i kind of like to think about it is like making cookies if you've ever rolled out cookie dough and you've made your cookie cutters and you know you have the leftovers in between, with cookie dough you can ball it back up and roll it back out and cut out another round. And in fashion we do something really similar where we lay out patterns and we cut around them but we have no infrastructure for what to do with the leftovers, no plan, nothing. So it just gets tossed. And that's what I make my clothing out of. So I make this fabric by stitching those pieces back together. And I call it re-roll because it's like we're re-rolling our dough or our fabric. So could you sell the rolls to other people as well? Or is it just for your line? Yeah, I've, I've done a lot of brand collaborations where we'll sell fabric that's either made out of our scraps or out of their scraps back to them. And they can incorporate it into their own collections, make their own pieces out of it, um, or do something cross-branded between us and them. Are you consulting too? Like, are you helping them like pick up these techniques? Most companies are not set up to deal with their own scraps because it's a whole production level. And I try and explain to people, we do two things. We make textiles and we also make clothing and they're two totally separate functions. So a lot of these people um, look at us more as a resource than as a source of information. But um, for other people looking to do that, yeah, definitely consulting and, and trying to help people move their business in the direction of closed loop. Yeah, absolutely. And you're on a show too, right? It was an NBC show? Yeah. Fashion? Fashion star. Fashion star. With, How was that? It was amazing. My, um, I was with a fellow Canadian. Oh, really? <laughs> she awesome. was a super talented designer named Cassandra Hobbins. Cool. And... That was in 2013, so it's been a solid like five years. Um, we filmed it in 2012, so like it's been a minute, and I feel like that experience was so incredible. I, I just learned so much about how to present my work, commercial viability. Um, one of my favorite things I was just saying to um, someone the other day is a phrase that I learned on that show, retail is detail. Um, and I think that that is something that I really took away from that experience with me. I make really basic pieces, hoodies, sweatshirts, joggers, just stuff everybody can recognize, but it's the detail that goes into the fabric that makes them something people really connect with and, and always leaves them flying out the door. And I think that that was something I really got from that experience. I was 22 when we filmed the show, and I was just like just starting my career and just graduating school and getting one foot out the door and to come back and five years later really see the value of um, just those little pearls of wisdom that I learned along the way was gratifying and definitely a good reason to participate. Nice. Did you go to school for fashion too? I did. I went to FIT, which is the Fashion Institute of Technology here in the city. I did their four-year program and as part of that I spent a year in Italy, which was cool. 
That's like the fashion center like of the world, maybe? Am I right? I mean, New York, London, Paris, Milan. Okay. Tokyo. So, one of them. It was incredible. So, I mean, every country sort of has its own thing. And I feel like New York Fashion Week is very much about streetwear, ready-to-wear, young designers, trends. New York has always been known as, like, the, the breeding ground for young designers. Paris is sort of the couture capital of the world, the Dior, Chanel, like, tippy-tippy-top of the industry. And then Milan is craftsmanship. I mean, that was, like, really what we were there for. Um, And when you think about, like, the great Italian designers, Dolce Gabbana, Armani, Versace, like, those brands are all about the quality of the clothing. You know, it's, it's simplistic design, things you can wear forever, and the fact that the teams and the houses behind those brands are generation-old techniques that have been going from family member to family member for years and years and years. Like Prada uh, started as a luggage and leather company, um, and after decades of doing that, launched an apparel business um, and had the resources in Milan to be able to do it with the finest quality possible. Um, and I think that that's, that's a really important thing to take away from that, that year there. I feel like I really learned a lot about the global perspective on design and where in New York, I was being forced to churn out new ideas constantly, um, work harder, later hours, you know, like push myself to be the most creative designer I could possibly be. In Italy, I was learning work-life balance and also that I needed to figure out how to specialize because you can't be everything. And there it's like, oh, it's six o'clock, the school's closed, you must go home and have a cocktail now. <laughs> like that was the lifestyle. And so you only had enough time to become an expert at one thing. Mm-hmm. And um, I saw someone whose entire life was devoted to just knitting, whose entire life was devoted to only fixing sewing machines, just the craft of hand sewing, just printing on leather, like very, very specific tasks. Um, And I realized that just doing one thing for my entire career might be enough for me um, and started kind of getting on an indirect path to finding out what that one thing might be. So what would you say the one thing is, like if you were to put it in a sentence? Yeah, I had another experience while I was at FIT that really kind of shook me to my core, um, which was uh, in my first week of classes, I went to my first art and design class with this amazing professor, his name's Steven Stippelman. and he wrote the book that FIT teaches on illustration. And he's just a genius whiz, like amazing. And, you know, like drips artwork out of his hand. It's like no <laughs> effort for him and everything he does is just like, ah. Oh. So in, in this class, he was like, listen, you just need to decide. He's a really funny little man, like older gentleman. Um, mustache and he's like you just need to decide what you want to do with your career like because there's two kinds of designers there's good designers and they get work and they do things and you know they see their designs walking up and down the street and then there's great designers and they change the way people dress and I was like oh like someone knocked the wind out of me I was like (laughs) I have to be a great designer like that's what I really feel like I'm supposed to do and it's been such a long time since we had that revolution of DKNY and Tommy Hilfiger and Calvin Klein like come into New York and shake things up. 
And then in the 90s, we had this like grunge movement where Marc Jacobs sort of made it popular to make streetwear something you would buy in a retail store. And I think that really marked the sort of great casualization of America. And it's happened, and there's really no silhouette to innovate on. There are incredible geniuses that come along and inspire millions and millions of people like Alexander McQueen with their handwork and their concept and and the uh, emotion behind what they do. And there are other ways to reach people in design by touching them on every single day of their lives. And what I kind of want to do with Zero Waste Daniel is not necessarily change the way clothing looks per se. You know, we're going to wear pants, we're going to wear hoodies, like we know what these silhouettes are and what people really buy. But I think that we can change the way people dress by helping them understand what buying this basic need can symbolize when they walk out in the world. When people see this patchwork style, it signals something to everyone else who sees them wearing it. They know that you support these values and live this lifestyle. And it's been a really, really long time since we've had a symbol in fashion that has helped people unite in a way that wasn't exclusionary or religious. That's amazing. Is the future going to be tailored clothes? Like made to order? Yeah. So it might be. I think um, I think it's going to be a reinvention of what that means. So I think if you look at industrial design, for example, we've gone from a place where having a house was such a luxury to something that anyone can have, right? It's You can buy a prefab home and cut, like, buy the parts and build it in your backyard, uh, or a mobile home, or all sorts of different options in between. And then you look at the way people started outfitting their homes with these designs that could be customized very easily. You can lift a shelf slightly higher, you can buy this different arrangement of shelves so that it'll fit custom to your space. And it's this phenomenon of customized industrial design. And I do believe that is the future of how we'll dress. So things will be made to order and will be customized by the consumer, but they won't necessarily be made with the original level of craftsmanship and quality. Mm -hmm. I think people don't really realize, because we've trained each other to think that clothing should be really cheap, people don't realize necessarily how much goes into clothing. But uh, I think Lee Edelcourt explains it in her anti-fashion manifesto really well. How can something that starts as crops on a field and needs to be grown, harvested, spun, woven, cut, sewn, packed, shipped, cost less than a sandwich? Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. The important thing right now is to remember that we have an opportunity as a community and as a, an industry to not just educate, but demand that we do the right thing, which is to not take advantage of human resources around the world, not just natural resources, by devaluing them and teaching each other that it's okay. Mm-hmm. There's so many more costs other than money, right? Mm-hmm. The cost of something is something that I really struggle with. I just feel like as part of my design education, I wasn't really taught to properly value the time that I take just to design something. You know, forget about the one or millions that you produce after it's been designed. It takes a really long time to design something well. 
And part of designing it well is to make sure that it's made out of things that are good for you, that there's no byproducts that are going to be left behind, that it's going to get to you in the best way possible. All of that is design. Um, and people think about design as like sketching or drawing or just coming up with an idea. And really, that's just sketching or drawing or coming up with an idea. True design is solving problems and, and coming up with systems that meet needs and not just putting useless things into the world. Mm -hmm. That's so well said. Thanks. I think it's really neat that you're saying that you don't like you weren't totally an environmentalist. Like you're doing this out of morals. <laughs> yeah. Which is so cool. Like there's so many reasons to do the right thing. Right? Yeah. I, I think that for me personally, figuring out the difference between what I needed and what I wanted was really important. And when you scale all the way back to what your actual needs are, and you know, people want to live a healthy lifestyle, so they have to work harder so they can afford a personal trainer so that they can keep eating McDonald's. <laughs> like, if you scale all the way back to like, I don't need the thing in my life, I just want this, and sort of get to a place where all you have are your needs met, you can live with so much less. Yes. And it feels really freeing. Um, I was trying to reduce and reduce and reduce my consumption uh, over the years. And when I finally like had a total huge life shakeup and I ended up moving into a new apartment, ending a long-term relationship, changing my whole life around and saying, okay, I actually have less. So how am I going to live with less? I just found I was so much happier, so much freer, needed less. There was no, no void in my life with just my basic needs met. I was happy. Mm -hmm. um, and when you look at all the beautiful and wonderful things that we have in the world, like a view of a sunset or a book that your friend can lend you, like what do you need all the internet and cables and shiny things for? Because there's so much already out there mm -hmm. that's for free. That's what I love about here so much is the people. It's so <laughs> nice. Like I just want to hang out with people while I'm here, you know? Like yeah. <laughs> I'm not shopping or like any of that stuff, you know? It's just, it's so cool. And there's something about being in the city that can be very hard because it's like, it's almost like if you've ever seen um, Finding Nemo, you know, when all the seagulls are like, mine, 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 mine. <laughs> everything is like, everyone's claiming everything here. Really? Um, but then there's so many wonderful places like Central Park or just on the street where nothing belongs to anyone. And these public spaces are a really exciting place where all different kinds of people are fine being together. Um, and I think that that's really what the heart of this city and this country are. But um, unfortunately, it's, it's become so much about what's mine and what's yours. And I think when people living their own personal lives or at work start thinking about how we do better for everyone, everyone wins. So you're a minimalist in your home? like It would be impossible to call me that if you could see the state of my home right now. I'm practically a hoarder. Um, <laughs> no, I'm definitely like a minimalist in the sense that I'm always reducing what I'm accumulating and trying to make sure I'm not taking new things in. I like to repurpose things um, and I'm very much a DIYer. So I have just like this tons of fabric scraps at home, but my coffee table is a sideways filing cabinet <laughs> so you know it's it's a it's a mix of the two definitely trying to reduce what I have and definitely stopped consuming in any measurable way that's cool that's why I call it the countdown 
Yeah. I'm always like just counting down. Like, I don't know if I'll ever get to zero, but you just think of things that you don't need and you take them out of your cupboard or you yep. replace it with something. Exactly. It's And it's like, okay, I've got all the stuff I've got. So why don't I wait for this to break or go bad or come to the end of its life cycle and then replace it with the non-disposable option that I can use indefinitely. And usually when that happens, if that thing comes to the end of it, its life cycle, it can either be recycled or replenished or renewed. So mm-hmm. that feels like an easier way to live. I'm just so much less stressed out. Like even just changing my cleaning habits to like vinegar and baking soda and lemon juice, like I just feel like fine so much better than when I had these like weird toxic chemicals and disposable things like I'm supposed to have this so it smells clean but I hate the way it smells and it makes me feel sick like you can do like oranges or like lavender or like something in it to make yeah, it smell nice right I use um lime essential oil nice it smells so good oh that's a good idea um but also like it's, it's so funny because I feel like a lot of these like cleaning and hygiene products are geared so much towards women because that's our like gender role is like women are going to clean the house yeah i got news for you no woman is ever going to clean my house it's me (laughs) or my boyfriend (laughs) so it feels very um it's not emasculating to buy vinegar (laughs) you know what i mean um and it can be to get these like gain floral scented like i like i don't want that stuff in my house and i definitely don't want to take it to a register like this is what i'm into (laughs) because i'm not yeah and the commercials are probably like a woman like at home you know like oh totally cleaning her counter or something totally and then you know it's like on the total contrast of that i have a friend who's a professional drag queen so talented um and he was like so uncomfortable for me to like go into a, a makeup store and like buy you know, whatever, or uh, like go into a clothing store and get a bra. And it's like, first of all, this could be for anyone. Second of all, like, it's for me. What What's wrong with that? You want to come see my show, don't you? Like, it's so it's, weird that it's weird still, because like in Canada, it's not weird. Like, <sighs> yeah, it's getting know. pretty normal in the States. But at the same time, it's still like in the store at the register. You're like in the women's section. And it's like, why? Why do you have to be in someone's section? Why yeah. can't things just be for people? I think the American culture is very obsessed with marketing towards specific people. That was something that I was educated with as I was brought up through school. It's like, find your customer, know your customer. And I was like, my customer's everyone. Yeah. Like anyone can wear a black sweatshirt. Mm -hmm. I don't care what size you are. I don't care where you come from. I don't like, I don't care if you don't like it, that's fine. You don't have to get it, but you can wear it. It's it's not, not for you. It's like gender, age, like what they do, Mm -hmm. like all that stuff for target markets. So weird. It is weird. Is longevity something that you look for, like, when you're making your clothes? Like, you want these things to, like, last forever in people's closets? Yeah, I do. And what's cool about what we're doing is sort of, like, surgery. If something happens to one of your patches, we can, like, take it out and replace it. it. Yeah. That's Uh, really cool. We can fix it. Um, You can have it fixed locally really easily. And, yeah, it's stuff that's, like, built to love. One of the things I'm working on is thread, but I use a really strong thread that has a polyester core because part of investing in these pieces is that you don't want them to fall apart. You don't want them to go to landfill go to landfill or just because there's something wrong with it. And I don't want to have to remake it. it, You don't have a sewing kit so much anymore. Like you do, of course I do, but not not everybody does and not everybody knows that skill. So yeah, yeah, making it durable is really important. I think about longevity with these pieces. I also think about, I've started thinking recently after I've been doing this for a few years now, like, 
you know, your everyone has their legacy, their thing that they stand for, what they've accomplished, their story. And it kind of makes me happy and psychotic at the same time <laughs> that mine will be like hundreds and millions of thousands of tiny little pieces all sewn back together. Like that's cool. bonkers. <laughs> um, I mean, it's just, there's no way to even imagine how many pieces we've already put into like a couple thousand garments that we've made. Wow. So I like that. And you've made some for some superstars that we would all kind of know their names. I have in the past. That's a funny process where like the creative director at Carolina Herrera, where I interned, my senior year of school said it best. He was like, you can make her the dress, but unless you zip her into it yourself, put her in the car, take her there, and watch her get on the red carpet, there's no guarantee she's wearing it. Um, so that's, a, that's an interesting tidbit for people to understand going into it. Most of the things that celebrities have worn of mine have been pulled by stylists and worn... Um, and then the photos made it in or they, you know, ended up on the red carpet or whatever. But it's never like the person coming in and be like, Daniel, make me a dress. <laughs> um, I've had um, pieces on Jennifer Hudson, Kristen Bell. I had something on season four of Broad City, which was huh? like the most amazing thing that's ever happened in my life. Which show? I um, love the show. I love I, like, introduced it to all my Canadian friends. Like, after coming down here, I saw them live. And now all my Canadian friends watch it. It's so good. Um... <laughs> It was on the Mushrooms episode. That was um, crazy. Yeah. It's like new animation. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so at the very end, Alana's uh, wearing my sweatshirt, um, which is really cool. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, I'm going to go watch that again. A couple other, um, some New York people, Broadway actress Alexandra Socha just wore one of my pieces to the opening of her new show, Head Over Heels, which is cool. And it's, it's fun to see people who are in theater, in film, in TV, in music, um, who are now aware of this brand being like, hey, can I get something for my event? I'm like, yes, let's do this. So, so cool. if you're listening and you have a project or an idea, a show, anything, like I love getting this message out there. And as the brand grows and people know what the patchwork means, it makes me so happy that artists want to support it. Awesome. Do you work with Lauren Singer at all too? Like, do you have clothes in her store? Um, not anymore. I originally co-founded Package Free. Um, oh, you did? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. I brought the concept to her in 2000. 16, 17, we partnered up and um, started the store. And then after the holidays of 2017, she took over. Um, yeah, it's interesting to get all these products into your life, you know, like soap bars. And yes. And yeah. stuff. It's so good. Well, this is so awesome. I'm so happy to come here. And thank you so much My for pleasure. inviting me. It's thank so you amazing. Coming. It's so cool to see everything here. And like we have your sewing machines here and like there's clothes everywhere. And like, it's really cool. So thank you. It's awesome. So thank you for that. Yeah, my pleasure. Come back anytime. That was Daniel Silverstein. His fashion label is Zero Waste Daniel. This week on my countdown to Zero Waste, I dyed my hair back to its normal color. I'm going to miss the blonde, but I won't miss the roots. I won't miss the money that I've been spending on getting my hair done. And also, I'm probably going to go gray soon anyway, so it's nice to see my natural color before that happens. Don't forget to subscribe to the Zero Waste Countdown podcast on whichever platform you listen in on. And you can follow me on Instagram at zero underscore waste underscore countdown. And if you're interested in becoming a patron of the show, you can find us on Podbean and click the button that says become a patron. 
For as little as $1 a month, you can donate to the Zero Waste Countdown podcast and radio show to ensure that we get better equipment and we bring you the latest and greatest information in the zero waste world. Change starts now. This is the Zero Waste Countdown podcast.